welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I am going to tell you a story that relates to World War I, also known as the Great War, as it was originally known. And it's a story from Southwest Michigan. It concerns the Ambulance Corps that was formed in Battle Creek and some of the history of the men that served in that corps. So come along and join me. So the articles that I'm going to be referring to are from a collection of articles written by Elizabeth Newmeyer in her book called What's in a Name? And she wrote for Scene Magazine for many years and put this collection of history articles that she wrote over the years into a book form. And you can still buy this book at the Battle Creek Historical Society. They also have copies at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum, and it's probably available in a few other places around town. And there's some great historical articles about the early history of Battle Creek from her own research that she put together. And these scene articles tap into different aspects of the regional history as well. So the story that I'm going to tell you today is about the Battle Creek Ambulance Corps that served over in the European theater in World War I. So in April of 1917, the U.S. had entered the war in Europe. And following that declaration of the U.S. getting involved in the war, Dr. James Case, who was the son-in-law of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg in Battle Creek, wrote to the National Red Cross asking for authority to organize an ambulance corps in Battle Creek. Now, this was timely as the British and French medical systems were pretty worn down in their third year of fighting in the war. And so within 10 days, they had authorization and 75 men enrolled immediately in the Ambulance Corps number 11 that was formed in Battle Creek. And the training started right away in Battle Creek and they began learning skills like first aid, elementary hygiene, camp sanitation, elementary nursing, practice drilling and field exercises, and learning about poisons and their anecdotes. And some of the men were already trained in nursing via the sanitarium programs. Once they were done with their local training in Battle Creek, they were sent to Camp Crane over in Allentown, Pennsylvania. But the place really wasn't ready until late June, and so now there was 117 fellows that were ordered there to to arrive there, and Battle Creek sent them off on June 27, 1917. And there was an article in the Moon Journal and the Inquirer in Battle Creek that describes their line of march through town. They gathered at the sanitarium and proceeded to Washington, then to West Van Buren, then to McCamley, to the Michigan Central Tracks, which is now Clara's Restaurant, and they were escorted by the Battle Creek Home Guard, the Kellogg Rifles, and members of various Masonic groups, and the Sanitarium Band and all interested citizens turned out for the sending off party. Now, Dr. James was now a captain of the Ambulance Corps because he led the group. And they were all put on three cars, and they were given an allowance of $1.50 for three meals on the train. Now, while they were being paid as Army soldiers, they still had to supply much of their own materials, including their own uniforms. Now, when the men got to Allentown, they found themselves 
um, housed in converted horse stables. In fact, one fellow wrote home with his address as stall number 11. Planning, even after they arrived, seemed to be pretty slow. Um, this was more of an ad hoc type program, it sounds like, in the beginning. And they didn't end up getting sent to Europe until June of 1918. One of the things that slowed them down was an epidemic of measles that occurred in the camp over in Allentown. Finally, they were sent over to Italy. Now, this was a political move on the part of the Allies as Italy had changed sides during that point of the war, and the Allies wanted them in their fold. So one of the members of the Ambulance Corps wrote a letter home. His name is Clarence Andre on July of 1918. And he stated in his attempt at uh, Italian, writing home to his parents, Dear Madre and Padre, he expresses his own enthusiasm to get to the front in France. And however, he says that when the war is over, he's going to spend his time fishing on Fine Lake and cautioned his parents to load up on chicken and ice cream for his return home. Uh, by August 1918, they were serving in France. And also they were serving during some pretty grueling offensives during that point of the war. And they served as the ambulance corps during the Saint Michel and the Meuse Argonne campaigns over there. So along with letters to the Battle Creek Inquirer, the Community Research Archives had other first-hand resources when Elizabeth wrote this article that she incorporated into the storyline. And one of them was the diary of Willard Schuldice. There was also a timeline from Carlton Genbach and a short memoir timeline from J.H. Collar and P.D. Halder that was used in the... Um, collection of the material for this article. So in the diary, Willard talked about the dangers of driving an ambulance, which the men generally referred to as the machine. Now that's a historical note because at that point in history, automobiles were very new and they were called machines at that time. They weren't called cars or automobiles. Cars were something you referred to as train cars. So it's a it's part of the vernacular of the time period early on. They weren't called automobiles. They weren't called cars. They were called machines. And Schuldice wrote in his diary, it's certainly hard driving over strange roads in pitch dark without the light. The roads are always crowded at night with everything, and you can't see them until you have nearly run into them. Quite a job to find a town you never heard of driving in the dark. And that was his entry. Uh, he also mentioned that he slept in the ambulance sometimes. And Schuldice, Collar, and Halder described picking up soldiers who'd been gassed and commented on their masks not fitting properly. Uh, artillery fire was constant and often shook the litters in the machine, which is inside their ambulance. Um, when Armistice Day happened, Schuldice said that the train whistles blew and the men cheered and fired pistols into the air. And the only question they had on their mind was, when will we get home? Um, they didn't get home until May of 1919 because they were part of the occupation of Belgium and Germany. But there's more information that I'm going to go into about this story from some of the other diary entries. So Dr. James Case, and he lived from 1882 till 1960, he was the leader of the Battle Creek 
Ambulance Corps, also called the BCAC. And he was promoted after he got them organized and off to Camp Crane in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Dr. Case was made the captain of the Corps, and he was promoted to director of X-ray services for the entire American Expeditionary Force. Early on, Dr. Case became an expert in Rowan genealogy, named after the X-ray's discoverer. And then later, the more familiar term radiology would be used. By the end of the war, he was a lieutenant colonel. And he was in great demand after the war and did a great deal of work in the therapeutic use of x-rays, especially in treating cancer. And Case wrote many books and articles on radiology and eventually was recognized throughout the world as the foremost expert in radiation and therapy. So that's quite an interesting history of Dr. James Case, who came from Battle Creek. Now, almost immediately when the Corps was formed, mothers organized the Ambulance Mothers Club. While their sons were in training and then overseas, the women dedicated themselves to helping the soldiers at Camp Custer. When the Ambulance Corps members came home, they promptly formed a Veterans Order of the United States Army Ambulance Corps, or USAACS, with their motto, Once a USAAC, always a USAAC. 1922 saw a major reunion in Allentown, and many of the Battle Creek members of the Ambulance Corps attended that reunion. And Elizabeth researched a lot of the individual members that served in this corps from Battle Creek. Carlton Genbach, who was um, became the vice president of the United Steel and Wire Company of Battle Creek. It was founded by his father, George, and it was uh, once located at 409 Wayne Road. Carlton wrote a short timeline of his experience in the Ambulance Corps, appropriately on United Steel and Wire Stationery. And he was the director of the company sales, and Carlton was a community leader and member of the St. Thomas Episcopal Church. Horace Meacham, who passed away in 1979, went to Brown after returning from the war, and then he graduated from the University of Michigan Law School in 1924. And he was the Calhoun County Assistant Prosecutor, and then the County Prosecutor, and then he um, served as the President of the Oak Hill Cemetery Trustees and also as the President of the Community Hospital Association. Another familiar name in the community was George Toller. He passed away in 1974. He was a graduate of Wharton School of Business in Pennsylvania, and he followed his father, John, as president of the Toller Department Store. For a time, he was president of the Battle Creek Food Company and a director of the sanitarium. And because of his community service actions as a member of the Battle Creek Board of Commissioners, the Human Services Building on 190 East Michigan is named after him. Toller's brother, Franz, was also in the Corps, and he went on to work in a Ford garage. He was a mechanic and an important person to have to keep the ambulances running during that time. Another Wharton School of Business grad was James Baker, who passed away in 1954, and he was the president of the Kalamazoo Lumber Company here in Battle Creek. Otis Ketchum, who died in 1953, he went to Allentown with his wife, Bertha, and they took many photos of Camp Crane, and their collection is now part of the Battle Creek Historical Society's Community and Research Archives. Otis was a rural mail carrier and storekeeper in Dowling, and he belonged to the American Legion, Bedford Masons, and the Rural Letter Carriers Association. 
Joseph M. Booz was a graduate in 1913 of Battle Creek Central High School, and he attended the University of Michigan. He passed away in 1977. He was the first city clerk of Battle Creek and the city controller. Uh, Roy Westerman, who passed away in 1954, was in vaudeville before the war as a baton twirler. And his stint in the Corps and he and his brother George were with the American Legion Drum and Bugle Corps, and Roy was named the Champion Major of Michigan and taught baton twirling at Michigan State University and the University of Michigan. Later, he was the deputy in the county clerk's office and the justice of the peace. Another man, A.F. Blosey, who died in 1985, was one of Dr. Kellogg's personal secretaries, and he earned his way through school as a champion billiards player. Losey became president of the Battle Creek Food Company and the editor of Good Health magazine, and he also became nationally known as an outstanding hybridizer of irises. Willard Scholdice, who passed away in 1966, kept a diary that was pretty detailed of his experiences in the ambulance corps. And that diary was used in some of the article that Elizabeth... Uh, Newmeyer wrote here. And Willard was a student of the University of Michigan, and he left to serve in the Ambulance Corps. Um, he left school to go serve in the Ambulance Corps. And when he came home, he returned to the university and graduated in 1921. He also went to the local Albright Business College and graduated in 1924. With his brother Ward, Willard operated the Schuldice Brothers Sheet Metal Works founded in the early 1900s by brother James and Alonzo Schuldice. And Willard was an active community leader in the First Congregational Church and the American Legion and the Masons, and he also founded the Five Cities Association of Sheet Metal Contractors. While Willard was serving in the war, the Shuldice Works did much of the labor over at uh, Camp Custer, and the Shuldice business today is at 182 Elm Street. It's still there, and there's still many members of the Shuldice family here in the Battle Creek community running various types of businesses. Now, that was the end of the article that Elizabeth Newmeyer wrote, and a lot of very fascinating local information. Now, I went to the Library of Congress, and I found an article that was published in July of 2014 discussing the World War I ambulance drivers. And uh, very fascinating insight here. It says, if you've ever driven in the city, then you are certainly familiar with the jarring sound of an ambulance on an emergency run. The loud, wee-hoo, wee-hoo, in concert with rotating red lights, evokes a sense of urgency that causes you to instinctively check your mirrors and pull over, making way for the vehicle that just may be the link between life and death for some poor soul nearby. If you've ever ridden inside one, strapped to a gurney, with your neck in a brace after a car accident, or something similar like that, you have a unique respect and gratitude for the people that drive these ambulances. Ambulances were still considered high-tech during World War I. World War I marked the first major conflict in which ambulances were used. This is the first time automobiles would be utilized to move the wounded and the dying. Now, countless lives that would have otherwise been lost on the battlefield could be saved. Driving an ambulance enabled Americans to participate in the war before the official entrance of the United States in 1917. And it also gave younger Americans who were not yet 18 an opportunity to participate, as well as those 
who might have supported the Allies but did not want to serve in a combat role. The American Red Cross and the American Ambulance Field Service provided the majority of ambulance drivers for the Allied forces. The Women's Motor Corps of America and Nortan Haji's Ambulance Corps also provided drivers and support. According to the American Red Cross website, during World War I, Red Cross employees and volunteers provided medical and recreational services for the military at home and abroad and established a home service program to help military families. 18,000 Red Cross nurses provided much of the medical care for the American military during World War I, and 4,800 Red Cross ambulance drivers provided first aid on the front lines, including one Ernest Hemingway and a young Walt Disney. Other notables who served as World War I ambulance drivers included the Ninth Librarian of Congress, Archibald MacLeish. And the American Red Cross website states that during World War I, 296 American Red Cross nurses and 127 American Red Cross ambulance drivers died in service to humanity during that war. According to the American Ambulance Field Service website, AFS participated in every major French battle and carried more than 500,000 wounded during World War I. By the end of the war, 2,500 men had served in the American field service with the French armies. The Library of Congress Veterans History Project holds more than 350 collections from World War I of veterans, and some of whom served as ambulance drivers, with fascinating stories to tell. Through recorded interviews, photographs, letters, diaries, and other documents, these veterans helped to paint a vivid picture of what life was like for them a century ago. The last known World War I veteran, Frank Woodruff Buckles, who passed away in 2011 at the age of 110, has three interviews in the Library of Congress archives. Buckles' collection also includes a multitude of documents. During one of his interviews, Buckles shared that his main goal upon joining the army was to get to France as soon as he could. He took the advice of a sergeant who told him if he wanted to get to France, he should train to go with the ambulance corps. And that's just what he did. Little did the army know that Buckles had lied about his age and he was only 16 years old when he told the recruiter he was 21. So there's a lot of archival history concerning the history of the ambulance corps that served over in the Great War. And if you've ever read any of Ernest Hemingway's books, he has a couple of his stories that feature ambulance drivers um, that drawn from his own personal experiences uh, in his books. Um, The Sun Also Rises is one of those books. And what is the other one? I think the other one is uh, Men Without Women. Is uh, There's a mention of one of the stories in that collection about an ambulance driver. Uh, but it seems to me that there was a third one in there, and I'm probably missing. Any Hemingway fans out there can uh, probably chime in on that. But it's uh, also, also Ernest Hemingway spent a lot of time in Michigan, uh, northern Michigan area, and there's a lot of stories about him up in the uh, northern part of Michigan. And But if you ever want to read a great anthology of a lot of different stories about Battle Creek's history, I'd highly recommend you get a copy of this book. It's called What's in a Name? It was written by Elizabeth Neumeyer, and it was from her collection of scene articles 
that uh, all started with what's in a name, and she basically explored the history of names of people, places, and um, other notable um, names that you would find within a community and gave you some of the back history of it. It's a very fascinating way to approach the study of history locally. And she has a lot of great stories to tell, everything from California gold rush miners to days of the sanitarium to all the great business leaders, and, of course, this story about the ambulance drivers. And I will put the link in the show note descriptions to the Library of Congress article that I mentioned because there's a lot more details about the Buckles history as well as uh, some pictures and other links to some of his letters and also some of the other uh, history on some of the ambulance drivers. It was a very fascinating history in Battle Creek because 1917 was quite a transition year um, in the city because that was the year Camp Custer was built and established, which has been a major part of the city's history since that time. And there was this massive construction project to build Camp Custer, which became Fort Custer. And it's obviously scaled down and from what it once was. Part of that land has been turned into the Fort Custer National Cemetery. There's part of it's been turned into the Fort Custer Recreation Area. And part of it is still used by Fort Custer as a military base. And then part of that land is now also the Fort Custer Industrial Park. So there's all of these major uh, contributions or things that are connected with the city of Battle Creek and part of uh, Augusta. And it uh, had a big impact on this region. So World War I was certainly the start of a major change in the development of this part of Southwest Michigan. And um, the history of the Ambulance Corps is pretty interesting. And I'm sure there, there must have been other ambulance corps that came from other cities in southwest Michigan. But I found this story to be quite uh, compelling. So that's going to conclude that story for today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a review or rating on whatever app that you are listening on. And be sure to reach out to me if you'd like to at michaeldelaware.com. Once again, you can also pre-order my book at that website website michaeldelaware.com and the book that's coming out is victorian southwest michigan true crime and there's also a full calendar on there of my upcoming speaking events about that book it's going to be a very busy and exciting period in march april and may for me because i'll be out speaking and uh, traveling around quite a bit. That being said, I want to remind you that the schedule for the podcast is going to start changing in march Beginning Sunday, March 3rd, I will be switching. The following episode will air on Wednesday, and I'll be going to Sundays and Wednesdays from there out for the rest of the season or the rest of the year. Uh, Just two episodes a week. Part of that is the complex schedule has been becoming quite hectic for me in my activities with the museum as well as uh, my book tour. And I also want to have time to do more writing and get another book out maybe for next year. And so I need to be able to scale back some of my production time on the podcast. And I also want to be able to create a few more videos uh, than I have been doing with the YouTube channel. So, And there's a possibility of another project in the works for me. I may transition to a uh, more statewide podcast as well. And I have had some discussions with a few other co-hosts to maybe take on a project like that. And that may be something I develop later on in the year. So I'm kind of structuring the uh, Tales of Southwest Michigan past. I want to keep this going. 
But it should be noted that I have already crossed the 300 episode threshold and I'm well on my way to 400 uh, probably by the end of this year. So that's quite a lot of episodes on local, regional, and southwest Michigan history. And it gets uh, pretty stressful at times when I have had to um, stay up really late to research the next story for the next day's show and that sort of thing. And it's just... uh, becoming quite tiresome also in prepping for my book tour and a lot of the other pressures from my publisher and plus trying to keep my own business that I have on the side that funds all of this so getting a little bit uh, spread thin Uh, anyway so that's going to be the schedule change um, following uh, March 3rd it will be switching to Sundays and Wednesdays that being said that is going to conclude today's journey through history and I hope that you will join me again next time when we take another tour down the path of yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of southwest Michigan's past thank you for listening (music) 